following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Dan Reeves. Uh, I serve on the men's ministry team here at CLF, and I lead a, a Bible study on Thursday mornings at what I've been told is a unreasonably early hour, uh, but we feed you really well, so guys keep coming. Uh, it's a unique privilege to be in the pulpit this morning and to preach the Word of God to you. Church, I love this book. I love this book not for the sake of the book, but for the sake of the one the book reveals. Amen? Amen. Some might argue the most important thing about God are his attributes revealed in the book. Right? And that's true. His might, his power, his omniscience, he's all-knowing, right? His holiness, his righteousness, his moral perfection, and, and his love. Scripture says God is love. And listen, all of these things matter. They're all very important. They help us understand who God is. But church, I would submit to you that in my own personal world, once I came to grips with the fact that there was a God, right? Sludge did not bump into sludge and six billion years later, here I am. Like, I I don't have that much faith, right? Amen. I, I am fearfully and wonderfully made by a creator who loves me. And so are you. Once I come to understand that there is a God and I understand his attributes, who he is, the most concerning question for me is this. What is God's posture towards me? What is his disposition towards me? Is he angry or disappointed? Is he indifferent? Is he against me? Do you know that scripture has a consistent answer for this for the Christian? What are there, 300, 400 people here this morning? And in this crowd, there's someone who has just gotten a cancer diagnosis. I actually know that. And someone else has lost hope in their marriage and they're hanging on for dear life, just praying that somehow God will give them the strength to endure. And I know them too. And there's moms here whose hearts are broken over children who have walked away from their faith. And I know you too. And there's also young folks here who have fear over what their future looks like. And a thousand other worries and concerns that I know nothing about. And for all of those, for every one of those fears at the core of your heart, you need to know one thing. What is God's posture towards me in my time of need? Does God care? And will he help me? So church, by God's grace, as we open the book, that's what we're going to see today, the answer to that question. And it's our big idea for today that God's people who are saved by his son can have confident hope in all circumstances because God is for us. This is his promise. And and just fair warning, guys, we'll be in several places in the book this morning, right? I'm, I'm not good at staying just in one text. We're going to start in Psalm 56. We're going to springboard to Romans. We're going to take a segue for three cautions. And then we're going to wrap up back in Psalm 56. So buckle up. It's going to be a good ride. Uh, Stand with me if you would. Open your Bibles to Psalm 56. Church, hear the word of God this morning and find hope 
in your God. I'll be reading from the NAS, New American Standard. Text will be on the screen if you're in a different translation. It says, be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long. For there are many who fight proudly against me. When I am afraid, I will put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in in God I will put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? All day long they distort my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They attack, they lurk, they watch my steps as they've waited to take my life. Because of wickedness, cast them forth in anger. Put down the peoples, O God. You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? This I know. Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, In God I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. For you have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you, Lord, for your word, most of all, because it is so faithful to reveal your nature, to reveal your care for your people. And we as your people need to hear from you this morning, Lord. We need more than anything to know how our Father sees us and meets us. So, Father, I pray you do that through your word. Reveal to your people your love for them by your spirit. Open our eyes and our ears to hear the truth from your word. Father, I pray for the speaker that you'd help him. You know my weakness and my inability. And, Father, by your spirit, I pray that you would meet your people through your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Christian, if there's one thing I could deposit in your mind, one thing that I would have you hear like a bass drum beat, like that bump that was going on in the backdrop, that was actually awesome, it would be this. Psalm 56.9, this I know that God is for me. This is the central truth that David clings to in his desperate situation. This truth is the bedrock upon which the entire psalm is built. And without it, all confidence, all hope will crumble in like a house of cards in a breath of wind. If God, the all-powerful, sovereign king of the universe, is for me, what have I to fear? But if that is not true, if rather God is against me, what hope have I in heaven or on earth? This I know that God is for me. Church, the backstory to this psalm gives weightiness to David's claim. You see, most of the psalms are written in response to some event or circumstance in history, and Psalm 56 is no different. It's written as David's testimony of God's deliverance in an impossible situation, the story of which is written in 1 Samuel 21. David has just gotten word from Jonathan that King Saul is set on taking his life. So David does what any reasonable man will do. He runs. He flees for his life, and he runs first to the town of Nob in search of food and a weapon because he had to leave so fast he had neither. And the priest tells him, the only weapon they have here is the sword of Goliath, whom you slayed in the Valley of Elah. 
David said, there's none like it. Give it to me. And he takes it and he flees west to the city of Gath. Why he does this, Scripture does not say. And, and I might add, Scripture makes no mention of David inquiring of the Lord. Perhaps the desperation of his situation caused him to run blindly, or more than like, more likely, I think, it was a strategic, though ill-conceived plan by David. You see, Gath was a Philistine city, enemy territory, if you will, and it was a place Saul's far-reaching influence of king of Israel was unlikely to find loyal supporters, and Saul was unlikely to look for him. But what David failed to take into his calculations was that Gath was Goliath's hometown. Now think about that for a second. Gath was certainly home to Goliath's extended family, his brothers, his uncles, his father, all of his friends, As a tribal people, all of Goliath's family would have lived likely in that town. What's more, a warrior of his stature was famous. Everyone would have known Goliath. Further, you recall that David killed Goliath in front of all of the armies of the Philistines. That means that every fighting man left alive in the city of Gath would have been eyewitness to that battle, and they would know David on sight. Can you begin to see the gaping hole in his plan? Can you begin to see the desperation of his situation? Now, now, if there were any hope that he would go unnoticed, don't forget this, this really interesting twist of irony. What, what did David strap to his side right before running to the town of Gath? It was the handmade, purpose-built sword of a giant that hometown hero, Goliath. As David comes into Gath, this is the scene recorded for us in 1 Samuel 21. It says, Then David arose and fled that day from Saul, and he went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is this not David, the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his ten thousands of our countrymen, of our brothers? David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. It goes on to tell that the men of Gath seized David and they dragged him before the king of Gath to demand his life. So that, friends, that is the backdrop to our psalm. Psalm 56 is David recounting his thoughts and experiences as he went through this trial. So let's just work through the psalm and see what we can glean out of what David writes. First notice David's plight. He cries in verse 1, Be gracious to me, O God, for man has trampled upon me. Fighting all day long, he oppresses me. My foes have trampled upon me all day long, for they are many who fight proudly against me. Notice twice he repeats that phrase, Man has trampled upon me. I suspect we might say it in our modern vernacular like this. All day long they put the boots to me. They literally kicked the living tar out of me. Can you imagine the beatdown that the men of Gath gave David before they drug him before the king? This is where David writes this psalm. Just like Dave pointed out last week in Psalm 3, David's fear and pain is real. 
His life is in real and certain danger. These are not theoretical beliefs that he has that are floating around in space. They are how he deals with the certain imminent death in front of him. Then notice how David deals with this real trouble in verses 3 and 4. David turns and he preaches to himself. And I think this is really important, church. You're going to see this throughout the psalm. It's very instructive. He says, where is my hope? My hope is in the Lord. Who is worthy of my trust? Only the Lord. Who has made promises to me? The Lord has, and I can take him at his word. Remember, true faith, exercised faith, is taking God at his word. Church, do we do that? Do we look into God's word and do we take him at his promises and do we cling to them with faith? David says, I will put my trust in you, in the Lord whose word I praise. How precious is God's word, his promises to us. Psalm 119 says, forever, O Lord, your word is settled. It stands firm in the heavens. First Peter says, the word of the Lord endures forever. When God gives his word, it is settled. It is fixed in the heavens. David's hope is in God and in his word to him. So the reasonable question you might ask is, what word had God given to David that made him think somehow God might deliver him now? Because remember, David didn't ask the Lord whether he should go to Gath. It's an interesting note. Remember, God had declared through Samuel the prophet that David was going to be the king of Israel. Truly, David could praise God's word because that word to him was a promise yet to be fulfilled. And as such, he could hope in deliverance, even though his present circumstance was dismal. If the covenant-keeping God of Israel had promised him a hope and a future, if he had promised David he would one day sit on the throne, he need not be afraid. Truly, what could mere man do to him? Surely not thwart the plans of God, could he? So the next thing, church, I want you to notice is the rhythm of this psalm. And it's important because it's a rhythm in our own life. There are low point, There's a low point. There's this steady climb. Then he reaches this high point. He's on the high point for just a moment. And then he crashes back down to this low point. And then he seems to jut back up to a high point, And he stays there through the end of the psalm in worship. He says, be gracious to me. Everyone is trampling on me. I'm in this desperate predicament. This is my low point. But then David begins to preach truth to himself. He begins to lift his eyes off of his circumstance and turn them back up to heaven and fix his hope on the Lord. See, that's the steady climb up out of despair. Then as he finishes verse 4, he's reached the first high point and he ends with this lofty statement, what can mere man do to me? I mean, his danger was from man, right? But he looks at that and he's like, I'm untouchable. He seems almost untouchable at this point as though he had begun to live above the fray, which actually he does for a brief moment. But then, as we so often do, David takes his eyes off of the Lord. He looks back at his predicament and he crashes back down into his woes. He actually preaches himself back down into his woes. It's pretty bad. He says, what can mere man do to me? Let me tell you, here's a list. Here comes the low point again, right? All day long, they distort my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. See how he gets in his own head. 
They attack, they lurk, they watch my steps as they have waited to take my life because of wickedness, cast them forth in anger, put down the peoples, oh God. You see his low point. Church, you ever experienced those moments? Life is kicking you in the teeth. You muster all of your spiritual strength. You preach truth to your mind. You lift your eyes to heaven and you begin to live above the fray. You suddenly take a deep breath and it feels like you're breathing the air of heaven. And you realize, man, it is possible. It is possible to have joy in all circumstances. And then, bam, out of your blind spot, something else hits you and you spiral back down into despair. Isn't it interesting how quickly we go from untouchable to inconsolable? And your second despair seems more desperate than your first. And you, like David, resort to this, Lord, just destroy them all, right? Let's just scorched earth. That's the only possible path forward, right? Listen, you, you guys are quiet. You know that moment. Every one of you is sitting there going, oh, man, I did that this morning. We've all been there. What do you do? Are you lost to despair? Or is there a way out? See, that's the question. Church, I have to confess, I wanted to preach this psalm because of verse 9. This I know that God is for me. I read that and I thought, man, that'll preach. That is awesome. It's so encouraging. It's so triumphant. But I never saw the treasure that was in verse 8 until I'd been reading and meditating and studying this psalm for almost a month. Then I started wondering, what is it that got David to verse 9? How did he get to that triumphant place? Where does that powerful declaration come from? And I realized it's grown in the fertile soil of verse 8. Despair in verse 7, triumph in verse 9. What happened in between? Verse 8. Notice what David does, church. Take note, it's very instructive. He begins to recall God's nearness and his tender, intimate, personal care and concern for him. Listen to verse 8. You have taken account of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? I was thinking about this, and I read that verse, and it took me back to probably the hardest, most painful season of my life, which has been over a decade ago now. And I remember standing in church one Sunday morning, It's like we're doing this morning, trying to form words to sing the worship songs and just tears streaming down my face. I couldn't even speak because of the hurt and the fear and the desperation in my heart. And they were singing this song called He Knows My Name, and I won't sing it for you, so don't worry. But the chorus goes like this. He knows my name. He knows my every thought. He sees each tear that falls, and he hears me when I call. And I remember very clearly God just speaking quietly into my heart in the middle of that worship. I see each tear that falls, Dan, and I do hear you when you call. Intimate, 
attentive care from my God. And it buoyed me up and it gave me strength to lean back into life. Church, do you know that David was somewhere around 13 to 15 years old when Samuel anointed him king of Israel in front of his dad and his brothers? But David didn't take the throne until he was 30. That puts David running from Saul, a fugitive in his own kingdom, hiding in caves in the desert for well over 10 years. 10 years with a promise from God, yet pain and misery was his daily experience in life. Maybe some of you here this morning can identify with David. Distant promises of God seem very distant, and present pain is all too real. It's as though in verse 8, David hears the Lord whisper to him, Son, son, I've seen every step of your wanderings. I've seen every tear that fell, and I was near enough and attentive enough to catch each one and to put it in a bottle. And I've taken note of all of your hurt in my book that I might never forget, and so that my tender compassion might be for you. I'm near to you even now, and I will not abandon you, and I am working all of these things, all of these hard things, for your good and for my glory. Church, the tenor of the entire psalm turns heavenward after this. David says, if this intimate care of God for me is true, then my enemies will turn back in the day I call. Surely God will hear me and answer from heaven. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? It's as though David realizes if your sovereign hand has superintended over all of my journey, how could you ever abandon me now? If all of these things are true, I can rest in the confident expectation that in this too, you will care for me. This I know, that God is for me. Church, I hope you hear the drumbeat of Psalm 56. This I know that God is for me. I hope it gets into your DNA. And as you see the story behind it, you begin to understand the magnitude of that declaration. But behind that story is a quiet question for each Christian here today. And that question is this. Do you know? Is there a settled disposition in the face of any circumstance that your God, the all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign king of the universe is for you? Not just that you aren't under his wrath, but that your God is actively working for your good and his glory in all circumstances of your life right now. Christian, is that your confident hope this morning? Amen? You see, it does our souls no good if we see it in the text and say how sweet it is for David if it doesn't meet you in your chair this morning and preach peace and hope to your weary and anxious heart. And church, often the Old Testament, there are shadows, outlines of truth that find its full revelation and its full realization in the New Testament in Jesus. 
And the text before us is true of that. Christian, the greatest declaration in all of history and the final revelation that the God of heaven is for you is not found in Psalm 56. It's found just outside the old city of Jerusalem. It's a small outcropping of rock called Golgotha. That rock outcropping was the stone altar on which your God would offer his only son on the cross as the only acceptable sacrifice to pay the ransom for our sin-riddled and shipwrecked lives. On that rock, the sinless Son of God cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you, Christian, and so that I would not be forsaken by God. Praise God. Christian, if ever you begin to doubt that the God of heaven is for you, cast your eyes again to Calvary and see the irrefutable display of God's love for you in the price that was paid to reconcile you to himself. Church, Psalm 56 is but a pen and ink sketch of the picture of God's love and affection toward you. What David declares in black and white Paul filled in with full gospel color in the New Testament book of Romans. Romans chapter 8 is this remarkable parallel to Psalm 56. It's as though Paul was reading Psalm 56, seeing the gospel implications, and pinning Romans 8. If in Psalm 56, David is declaring that in all circumstances of life, he knows that God's favor is toward him, And his God is working for his good. Paul echoes that in Romans 8.28 when he says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You might ask, how how do we know that? How can we confidently know that the God of the universe is working for my good? Paul says, Let me give you this unshakable foundation upon which to build this. And he goes on. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Christian, can you see the sovereign hand of the all-knowing, all-powerful King of heaven faithfully at work to complete what he has begun both in you and on your behalf and to superintend over your entire journey? You see, God is all-knowing. He knew every mistake and every sin that you would ever do pre- and post-salvation. God foreknew you before you existed. He predestined you before you existed. He called you once you existed. He justified you when you responded to him. And one day he will glorify you and you will exist forever with him. Should he abandon you now in this moment when you need him most? Do you see the answer to that question, church? Paul continues, what then shall we say of these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Listen, church, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us 
all things. Christian, can you not hear the gospel fulfillment of Psalm 56, 9? This I know that God is for me. In Psalm 56, David says, what can mere man do to me? Paul echoes the refrain now in verse 35, and he says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? David has a temporal promise of an earthly throne, and on that he boldly asserts, what can mere man do to me? Nothing can thwart God's promises to me. Surely he will act on my behalf until I am safely seated on the throne. But Christian, dear Christian, can you see how much greater is our promise of deliverance? David was delivered from the king of Gath. We have been delivered from the power and the penalty of sin and death entirely because God, your God, has acted on your behalf. Listen to Paul again, verse 38, for I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor any created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, Christian in life and in death, no matter what trial may befall you, when your anxious heart tempts you to fear or to doubt that your God sees and cares and is actively working for your good, you can boldly preach to your anxious heart, this I know, that God is for me. Amen? Amen. Friends, this is a remarkable assurance for those of us who are in Christ. And at this point, honestly, I would love to walk off the stage and leave the room on that high note. I mean, what a magnificent hope we have, right? It's amazing I get to preach about that. But love compels me to add a sober footnote to the text. You see, in 52 years, I've seen far too many people walk away from their faith, turning their back on what they once claimed was true, having grown up in the church, yet revealing, sadly, they were likely never saved at all. And I myself, I lived 20 years claiming to be a Christian but never actually having a saving experience until I was 27. You see, in a crowd this size, there are no doubt some who believe the promises of God are for them, yet God himself is not for them because they do not genuinely belong to him. As I preach a message like this, I have a great fear, and it's this, that there are those in the building today who would hear the enthusiasm, the hope, and the confidence this message declares and leave with this warm, fuzzy feeling that God is for them, yet continue living a godless life and die one day, expecting to find God's favor only to hear, depart from me, I never knew you, and enter a godless eternity. I can't imagine a more devastating end to a life than that. Remember, friends, I lived 20 years claiming to be a Christian, yet never truly having been saved. And had I died in that season, had God not been long-suffering and patient with me, I would have heard those very words, and I would have entered a godless eternity. So, friends, indulge me for a moment. Listen carefully while I touch on the other side of that coin. 
You see, if one side of the coin is this great truth for the Christian that God is for me, the equally certain truth on the other side of that coin is that for the unsaved person, God is against you. And if nothing can separate the Christian from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, then the opposite of that is true as well. Nothing can save you from the wrath of God that is outside of Christ Jesus. As certain as the Christian is that God will help them in this life and in the life to come, the non-Christian must know that God will neither help them in this life nor in the life to come. In both, you will be on your own. We tend to think that if we're at church, we're surrounded by Christians, don't we? I'd like to briefly address three groups of Christians here this morning, and I use quotes not to be demeaning or disrespectful, forgive me, but, but because it is to these who may be Christian in name only, not in the fact of having a saving experience that I want to speak to now. So please listen, church. The first group whom I want to caution, I will call the counterfeit Christian. A counterfeit is something made to look like the genuine, but at the time of redemption, It has no real value. The counterfeit Christian can be found in church most Sundays because they love the association of the church. They may dress the part, talk the talk, but there has been no experience of salvation. Listen carefully. No new life has been imparted to their dead souls by the Spirit of God. Jesus in John 3, when talking to Nicodemus, who you might recall was a teacher of teachers and prominent in the religious world. Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Like Nicodemus, counterfeit Christians may wax eloquent on spiritual matters or sign up to serve in the high-profile places, but their list of religious duties are where their hope lies. Listen to Jesus' parable in Luke 18. Two men went into the temple to pray one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector, both at church. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes of all that I get. You see, the Pharisee stood upon his extensive pedigree as the grounds for his appeal to heaven. In contrast, Jesus says, but the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Friends, have you, a dead man, been brought to life by the Spirit of God, and has that Spirit affected in you a deep awareness of your sinful need? Have you come as a beggar before the throne of grace, casting your hope only on the mercy of God in Christ? Or do you stand proudly casting your hope and expectation of God's favor on your good deeds, your church attendance, or some service to the king? If so, I would caution you, Psalm 56 holds no promise for you. Turn from your trust in good works, in Christian things, and in desperate need. Cast your hope on Christ alone for life. The second group I want to caution, I'll call cultural Christians, and this is the group I was in for 20 years. I identified as a Christian because I'd I'd seen all the foolishness 
in the world around me that other views brought. I was, I was a red-blooded conservative Christian person, right? Pride in country and a strong moral compass made me hold my head proudly up and guided my life and my heart. And the moral tenets of Christianity, that resonated with me, though, quite frankly, my life didn't show it. And I bowed my proud heart to no king. I'd have said I was a Christian, but I had no king but Dan. You could find my type in Jesus' day as well. Jesus had come to the Jews with many claims. He was the son of God. He alone could forgive sin. He had a kingdom of which he was king. And to enter his kingdom, you must submit yourself to the king. Most of the Jews were fiercely nationalistic people and shot through with a sense of spiritual superiority because they saw themselves as better than all the fools around them. Morally or ideologically, they claimed to align with God, though their lives, much like mine, didn't show it. And in their hearts, listen, they would not have Jesus as king. When Jesus came on the scene with these radical claims, you hear the cultural Christian of the time in, a, in the crowd at a place called the pavement. And John records this in his gospel, chapter 19. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release Jesus. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement. Now it was the day of preparation for Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold, your king! And they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Cultural Christian, beware. Romans 10.9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, which means confess him as your Lord and your king, not just a king, but your king, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If that is true, the converse of that is equally true, that if Jesus is not your Lord, and if you have not bowed your proud heart to his good kingly rule, you will not be saved. You are indeed lost, just as I was. And Psalm 56, my dear friend, is not for you, no matter where your moral compass points. I'd urge you, bow your knee to King Jesus today and be saved. Come and follow him, and this, this can be the day of your salvation. Now, the final group I want to warn, and by far the most prevalent group in our country, I think, in our culture, are what I call casual Christians. You, casual Christian knows the facts about Jesus. They even find in their hearts some love, some affection for Jesus. They're stirred at times by the gospel, though they're much less likely than the counterfeit Christian to be found in church every Sunday because, honestly, a lot of things press for my Sunday, right? Yeah, you think of Jesus as your friend and you like the way you feel when you think of Jesus, but you have lots of things that are more interesting than him, if you're honest. Fun is your God. Affluence intrigues you. And the shiny things of this world hold sway in the court of your heart. You don't hunger and thirst for righteousness any more than you hunger and thirst for the things of the Lord. 
Paul says in Philippians, for many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. The cultural Christian claims Christ, but Christ has no claim on your heart, which is the seat of your affections. Jesus talks about the cost of discipleship in Matthew 16. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Casual Christian, do you bear the brand marks of the cross of Christ on your life? Is sacrifice and loss for the sake of the gospel and as a heart response to Christ's own sacrifice for you, a normative and joyful part of your life and love of Christ? Or do you want just enough Jesus to get to heaven, but not so much it costs you any pleasure or gain in this life? If so, my dear friend, Psalm 56 is no promise to you. It's a warning. It's just one more signpost crying out to you to turn from the love of this world and to fix your affection on the one who fixed his love on you before you enter a godless eternity. Those are my three warnings. Psalm 56, verse 9, This I know that God is for me. Church, this psalm stands as a giant signpost in the word of God. To the three groups I just described, it's crying out to you, turn, turn here, turn to God who would save you and set his face toward you for your good if you would just trust, submit, and treasure him above all else. It's crying out, today could be the day of your salvation. But to you, dear Christian, genuine Christian, who has trusted wholly in Jesus alone, bowed his knee to his king and loves his savior wholeheartedly, it's not telling you to turn. Rather, it's telling you to press on. Press on to the treasure of Christ that is fully ours and for which we should praise him every day because we are truly in the favor of our good king. Amen? Amen. And it brings us neatly to the end of Psalm 56. You may have noticed I didn't finish the psalm. I left a cliffhanger. Verses 12 and 13. It's David's charge to himself in light of God's mercies and favor. And it says this, your vows are binding upon me, O God. I will render thank offerings to you. Thank offerings. David lifts his voice in worship to the God who is for him and who has delivered him. And he finishes in verse 13 with, For you have delivered my soul from death, indeed my feet from stumbling, so that I may walk before God in the light of the living. Dear Christian, is that not our happy state today? May your heart rejoice. May your soul rest. And may your voice lift in praise to him. Because this we know that God, our God, is for us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the wonder of your word that so richly and fully reveals what is ours in Christ. Father, I pray your spirit would preach to the souls of your people the joy and the hope that is ours. And Father, I pray if there be any of those three groups here today that your word would preach to them, turn here. Turn from a false hope that will not save you to the true hope of Christ and today find your salvation. Lord, we pray you would do that in the hearts of people today. We just love you and we treasure you today, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.